Well, I think for most of us, whether it has been true to our experience or not, we desire home to be a place of safety uh, and acceptance. Uh, That has been, uh, at least historically, kind of the one place uh, of refuge. And of course, not everyone's upbringing is like that. Sometimes home takes on many of the same dangers that we face in the world. Uh, But what Uh, Researchers have uh, discovered recently with the rise of technology and especially the rise of technological use by those going through adolescence is that what used to be a place uh, of safety and some respite from kind of the pressures of the world, that home no longer has that same effect because your peers travel with you everywhere you go by means of Uh, our technology. So all of those things that were said to you all day long at school and all the fears that you had about whether you were cool enough or dressed well enough or if you were, you know, pretty enough or not not too heavy and not too skinny, those things tended to end when the school bell rang and you walked through your front door because your mom loved you just the way you were. Uh, But now you walk through your front door and all of those same peers are still talking to you and about you and so on and so forth. So that place that was once a refuge, again, is no longer that because of where we are in our technological advance. I guess advance all depends on where you're headed, but that's what we call it. Um, But the reality is home is intended, again, whether it lives up to its intent or not, to be a place of acceptance. And while it can turn into a place of judgment and expectation and demand, that's not what we desire for it. I think that's what most of us at least hope to set out when we start a family. We want it to be a place where everyone feels loved and and wants to be. Well, with that reality in mind, we want to see this morning a few things. First, the universal charge. The universal charge. Paul begins with this analogy concerning inheritance in Galatians chapter 4. And he makes one basic point, that even though a son is set to inherit the whole of his father's estate, that until that time comes where he takes possession of that estate, he has the same amount of access to all of his father's riches as a slave has. That in that sense, they are no different. Though he may be the owner of everything until, you know, if you will, the father hands over the keys to the kingdom at whatever point he decides, that son has just as much access to his father's wealth and power as any servant. He may be the heir, but he is not his own master, and so he must wait. And Paul says, I want to use this analogy to find a point of comparison For the Jews' reality when they were living under the law of Moses. He says, in the same way, we Jews were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. These elementary principles seem to point to the nation of Israel living under the law. Now, that may not be readily apparent, but notice what he gives as a solution immediately. He says, we were once slaves under the elementary principles of the law, but thank God, right, he sent his son born under the law to redeem those who were subject to the law. So clearly, it was this reality of slavery under the law that is in Paul's mind when he uses this phrase, elementary principles of the world. He seems to be saying that the time under law was Israel's time under age. They were like an heir waiting for the set time when God would redeem them from that situation in which they were in bondage. 
But of course, Paul, not just referring to their bondage, he takes up the same language concerning the Gentiles in the second half of our verses. You'll notice he says the Gentiles were also slaves to those things which were not gods. So he's speaking of all the idol worship of the Gentile nations. And he says, is this what you want to do? You want to turn back again to the elementary principles of the world? Notice he uses that same phrase. He says of the Jews under the law, you were under the elementary principles. And then he says to the Gentiles worshiping idols, do you want to turn back again to these elementary principles? Now that may seem like a strange comparison. It should seem like a strange comparison. If, if it's not, you've got to check in because you're not, you're not registering yet. But he says Israel under law as slaves is somehow comparable to the Gentiles worshiping false gods and being enslaved to them. That seems like a pretty offensive comparison that the law that God gave from Sinai is somehow being equated with idol worship that the Gentiles are partaking in. But that is the comparison because remember, what's the Galatians' temptation? The whole reason he's writing this letter is saying, the Galatians, you want to put yourself under the law? You want to be circumcised? You want to keep Torah? And notice how he phrases it here. You are subject to false gods, and if you turn back again, turn back again, they're not thinking about turning to false gods. Where are they thinking about turning? They're thinking about turning to life under the law of God, under the Torah of the Old Testament. And Paul says these two things are somehow able to be equated. Well, what do they have in common? How can it be that the holy law of God is equated with idol worship of the pagan nations? Well, Paul would say that they are the same in effect because they have the same foundational principles of the world, the world that undergird both of them. Well, what principle would that be? What principle does the law of God have that worshiping any other God or any false God has? Paul would say this basic principle of do this and live. The idea that you must do and acquire in order to be acceptable. For Paul, that principle of doing in order to gain or working in order to have life, he says that is built into the fabric of the world and into all of our being. Anyone made in the image of God, anyone placed on this earth, has that reality just imprinted upon them, whether they're under the law of Moses or whether they're worshiping you know, the sun god uh, in Egypt, that both of them are trying to operate by one Singular religious principle, if you do enough, you will be acceptable. I mean, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were under this principle. Their healthy relationship to the creation was based on this reality. Do not eat from the fruit of that tree and make sure you do keep God's commandments. If they were to break those things, if they did not do those things, then surely death would come upon them. That was the promise of God. Do this and live don't do it, and you will surely die. They broke that commandment, and now we, all of us, live with the consequences of it every day. We may not name it as such, but we feel it. I mean, that commandment, that principle, that do this and you will live, still exists, and it's embedded into each one of us, whether we can name it or not. I mean, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and 2, right? When he's speaking of those who are worshiping all manner of idols, notice how he concludes in chapter 1, though they know God's righteous decree 
that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, they give approval to those who practice them. Speaking of Gentiles who are worshiping idols and then sacrificing to idols and giving themselves over all kinds of sexual impurity, he says the reason they know they're going to die is because they had God's righteous decree. To which every Jew, hearing Paul speak to the Romans, says, what are you talking about? So Paul clarifies in chapter 2, and he says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, and their conscience bears witness, either accusing or excusing them. So Paul says, this is the principle of the world. That somehow the law, this do this and live principle, is imprinted on every human being from the cradle to the grave, whether they acknowledge the God of the universe or not, they still know that there's this operative principle that they must work to achieve, and if they don't, there's some dire consequence waiting for them. The basic principle, again, is in our DNA, and we never break free of it. I mean, think about it. Even pagans operate under some form of an eye for an eye. Uh, Every religion has as its base performance, keeping the rules or the days or the fasts or the pilgrimages. Uh, Whether it's karma, right? You get back what you put in. That's do this and live, just in another form. Uh, Or, you know, do enough to try to appease the gods. You don't want them to break out against you or withhold rain or to strike you with lightning. I mean, read any ancient text, and this is at the heart of all religion. I mean, from the dawn of philosophy, you find man's worth is always based on something in him or something that he's doing. I mean, Aristotle makes it plain. A good man is known by his deeds, or or quote Aristotle, a good man acts unto virtue and derives his happiness and pleasure from that virtue. How do you know a good man? He does the right thing, and he's happy about doing the right thing. That's how you know a good man. He goes on to say, justice is to give honor to those who are worthy. So notice the whole world is based on this matter of worth. Do the right thing, be a good person, achieve uh, the right ends, and you should receive honor and dignity and glory. In our culture, we do the same thing. We honor what we count as worthy. Now, that may not seem like it, uh, depending on your view uh, of the morals of our day, but the bottom line is if we find uh, your beauty worthy or your talent worthy or your success as something to honor, we will give you fame and honor and glory for achieving the things that we have deemed worthwhile. Now, that says a lot about who we are, uh, Who we make successful does say a whole lot about our culture and what we hold as noble, but it's still no different. If you achieve those things, you'll get the right ends. And it's no accident this is the case. Again, it's our natural disposition. We live a life governed by law. I mean, go on any kind of podcast about improvement. Life is a contest to be won. It's a battle where we are to emerge the victor. And how do you show that you're victorious? You know, either by your... Uh, pay stub or by your success or by the accolades that you're given. We are all born into a world where our whole life is seen as an accusation against which, which, uh, against which we must justify ourselves. You know, there's this whole th- reality of your life which is prove you're worthwhile. Prove that you matter. 
Prove that what you're doing is enough and that you're really worthy. Will you measure up? And the problem, of course, with that is you just can't win. I mean, all of us are playing in that game, but none of us can win it. You know, the, the song is correct. I fought the law and the law won. Uh, thus, all life long, we have been a slave to this sort of living, knowing that it is a taskmaster that will never let up on its requirements, and we will never achieve enough to feel like we're worthy. I mean, think about your daily life. This principle is written all over it in the way that you keep score about anything. I mean, how much money do you earn? If you're doing enough, well, good. You get a check mark by your name. What neighborhood do you live in? Do you live in the right neighborhood? Oh, you know, Meadowview, good for you. Uh, you know, answer correctly and your score goes up. How are your grades? What is your class rank? What college did you get into? Oh, you're not going to college? You know, mark that down. That's not, that's not good. You know, what brand of clothes do you wear? How much do you weigh? Who'd you vote for? Thoughts on gluten? Oh, you're for it? Mm, well, interesting. Uh, I mean, how many likes did you get on your last post? It's built in to the way that we do social media. There's an automatic scorekeeping being tallied at the bottom of everything you do. And it's telling you whether you're worth anything or not. Your life is lived under this sort of inspection. And because it is, we focus on any difference between us and others in hopes of those things helping us find some sort of right standing. Uh, Freud commented on this dynamic in his 1930 essay, Civilization and Its Discontents. Maybe you've heard the phrase that he put over it, the narcissism of small differences. He noted that it's frequently communities with adjoining territories and related to each other in other ways as well who are engaged in constant feuds and in ridiculing each other. So his point being is like, it, the greatest or the worst wars that have been fought are usually between people who are pretty similar. And it's those little differences that they're making a mountain out of uh, and, and it drives to war. So he said, you know, think of the English and the Scots or, you know, the Serbs and the Croatians or the Sunnis and the Shiites. You know, he goes on to know that it's like this in every aspect of life. You know, every time two families become connected by marriage, he goes on to say, each of them thinks itself superior or better by birth than the one that they've just married into. And so he says, why is it? I mean, why is it that we have to find differences and then capitalize on those differences? He chalked it up to this. To see one's neighbors reflect and mirror oneself too much threatens our unique sense of self, self and therefore our superiority. And so we must find a point of difference to prove our worth. If I'm just like you and I'm not better than you, that doesn't mean, that's saying something that, 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 you know, I'm not enough or I'm not, I'm not worthy enough. And so I've got to find some way that I differ from you that makes me better. And I can stand on that and name it. I mean, it's why you can have 90% of things in common with someone, but you'll allow that 10% to, divide, to define the total, totality of a relationship. I mean, why do we do this? 
It's because of what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 4, this ingrained principle of needing to find our righteousness by something, by some measure of doing, by finding something where we can hang our hat. And as soon as you start down this path, Paul says, you lose because you will never quite be enough. You're never going to quite do enough. In fact, it's usually far worse than not just doing quite enough. A bunch of things that we know that we have done, that we shouldn't have done, constantly stand up to accuse us and tell us why we're falling short. And Paul says this has always been your slavery. Whether you were a Jew who experienced it a hundredfold under the law that God gave you and predicated exactly what you were to be doing, uh, what you were to be doing, or whether you were a Gentile who had it ingrained on you by nature, but it was still accusing you day in and day out, letting you know that you don't measure up. And so if that's the first thing that we want to see, we want to see not only the universal charge, but a unilateral change. You'll notice Paul says, you know, those famous words, but God, and he says, God changed this fact. At the appointed time by God, Notice, he sent forth his son, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that they may receive adoption as sons. God acted to take us from slavery to sonship. And for Paul, this is massive. So notice the analogy of this waiting heir that Paul talks about. You know, at the appointed time... He inherits all of his father's possessions. It breaks down a little bit once he gets to his application. He says the similarities are that while you're waiting, you're the same as a slave. That's the similarity. He says the dissimilarity is there's usually something that a father sets, a time, a date, or, or an age, or, or, or a maturation date, where he says, now, son, I believe you are worthy of this inheritance, or you're old enough for this inheritance, you're mature enough to handle it, and so forth. He says that's not how it is with God. It's not that you reached, you reached a legal age of adulthood or a certain level of maturity. Instead, God, according to Paul, interrupted history and initiated a legal change in status based on his transforming work only. So notice, we were slaves, and at his appointed time, Paul just says, he made us sons. It's not that we were, you know, trying our hardest and we finally graduated into sonship. He just said, God saw the situation and he sent forth his son to deal with that which humanity had been unable to deal up to that point. Notice it's all God's doing. Our sonship is based on his adopting action. Verse 9, notice he says it's so, it, it's so uh, t t totally God's action that even when he says, You've come to know God. He says, no, that's not really how it is. It's really that you've come to be known by God. Even your knowing God is based on God's first action of knowing you and deciding to make you uh, his special treasure. It's predicated on his intentional knowing of us. We have been made heirs. We have been made sons through the action and the agency of God. And now, according to Paul... We have the full rights of sonship. And again, that doesn't mean much to us. We hear it, and we, you know, we've been in church long enough where we, okay, family language, God's children. I mean, even the hippies were into that, you know, we're all God's children. 
But for Paul, this is a massive shift in identity, one that is, should be transformative for our lives. Like it really is that big of a deal to him. So in the Greco-Roman world, for instance, a wealthy person who didn't have an heir, someone that was going to inherit the totality of his estate, he could adopt an heir that wasn't part of his uh, actual lineage by the simple writing up of some papers. And when those papers went through legally, the status of that person who was formerly not part of the family completely changed. And he became an inheritor and owner of everything that was under the father's name. It's a legal action, uh, Roman adoption is, that moved one out of a previous state into a new estate. As one author writes in a book that he wrote concerning slaves, citizens, and sons, says the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of a son to his new father. All his old debts are canceled. And in effect, the adoptee starts a new life as part of a brand new family. On the one hand, the new father owned all the new son's property, controlled his personal relationships, and had the rights of discipline. But on the other hand, the father was now liable for all the actions of the adoptee, and each owed the other reciprocal duties of support and so forth. So notice it's a status change. Paul is saying that God didn't just send Jesus to wipe away the negative things you had done previously. It's not just an erasure of some debts, as important as that is, the forgiveness of sins. He says there's a status change, a gift of all that is his now being yours by right. He's brought you into his family in such a way that you are owed things by him because you're an heir of him. You see how he did it? By the Son. He sent forth his Son in order that you might be made a son. Christ, the Son of God by nature, has come to make us sons of God by grace, according to Augustine. And the nature of our sonship is completely tied to the nature of his sonship. In fact, we're so tied to the sonship of Jesus that there's no discrepancy between his inheritance and ours. It's not that Jesus gets one thing from the Father because, you know, he's the favorite. And then we all get, we get to come to heaven, that's good, but, you know, we're just there as second-hand citizens. According to Paul, what the Son receives as inheritance, the Son, Jesus Christ, we all now receive because our status has changed and we have been united and linked to him. As Robert Candlish wrote on this topic, the only difference between our sonship and Christ's was that Christ enjoyed the privileges of sonship before we do, but they are not different in manner. So for Paul, all life long, we've been slaves under a curse that we couldn't, or under a law that we could not keep. We've been living under the fear of consequence due to that law. But in the sending of the Son, we have been set free from that by being adopted legally into the family of God. And so all that slavery gets wiped away in one legal action. And that's good news. But for Paul in this text, it wasn't enough. 
And I think deep down, probably in your own heart, you know it's not enough. And so notice Paul's third point, the unique cry. God first sends his son into the world. But then Paul says he also sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now again, that doesn't sound all that exciting maybe to you. (laughs) But what is going on here? Why does Paul want to stress the spirit being sent to cry out, Abba, Father, in our hearts? Again, that's not the kind of thing that gets me immediately, you know, uh, jumping for joy. But Paul is emphatic that you have been moved. Your status has changed. People of God, you are the children of God. And all that that entails, all the inheritance that that means, all that that means concerning God's disposition towards you, the problem is you don't believe him. That really is the problem. We don't believe what God says about our current status. And I know we don't believe him because of the way that we act. I mean, we still act like slaves. We act like children who are testing to see if their parents, you know, really love them, really are going to do what they say. I mean, one of the greatest heartaches in any parenting, but in particular in adoption, is when a child won't rest in their parents' love. When they won't be convinced of it for whatever reason. And it's a heartache both ways for parent and child. But that's us in this adoption. We are not convinced of God's love. We are convinced in some way that he is still a taskmaster looking looking for our performance, not a father who is utterly pleased with his child. How do I know? Why are you so afraid to fail? Or why do you spend so much of your life in fear of what's coming next or afraid uh, uh, of what all that's going on in society means for you. I mean, why are you so sensitive to criticism? Why is it so hard to say that you're sorry? I mean, have you ever apologized and got more angry as you were apologizing? It's that kind of thing. (laughs) Why are you so suspicious of God in the midst of your trials? And why do you start doing the old math of like, this has to be connected somehow to those things that I've done or some failure I've committed or the fact that we did it wrong back then. Now, that's why all these things are happening now. Why are you so angry when others are blessed? Or so afraid to let yourself be fully known by anyone? Why are you so afraid to give yourself fully in service to anyone because you always are thinking you're going to be taken advantage of? The answer is simple, because even though we are sons, we still feel and act like we're slaves. We still think it's a this-for-that reality. If I do the right thing, then I'll get this in return. And God says, that whole way of operating is ended. I've brought you into my home. We still think God has yet to be pleased with us. Sinclair Ferguson has a wonderful illustration on this in his book on this subject. When he takes up the story of the prodigal son, you'll remember how it goes. The prodigal decides that even his father's servants 
eat better than he does while he's, you know, sitting in a pigsty hoping for some leftovers when the pigs are done. And so he practices his speech. When I get home, I'm going to tell my father, I'm not worthy to be even called your son. I'll live. Why don't you make me a servant? And, and I'll work for you in that way. And Ferguson says of this, the reality of the love of God for us is the very last thing to dawn on us. That all of us still think, okay, he's forgiven me, but I got to show him that I deserve it, that he, that he did the right thing, or that I really mean it in this way. What doesn't come naturally to us is the reality that God really loves us completely and without exception. I mean, many of us find it very hard to believe that God doesn't just love us in some kind of legal way, but he delights in us, that he wants us, that he's pleased with us. It's too much to believe. I mean, it really is too hard. We know who we are. And, you know, the other people in our life have let us know that we're not always that lovable. And so, of course, our natural way of existing gets posited upon the God of the universe. And many of us are filled with prodigal suspicions that our sins and failure are not measuring up is really what God sees when he sees us. Surely God can't love someone fully like this. But he does. And how do we know? Because he made you his child, he adopted you. And the doctrine of adoption stands on the shoulder of Paul's doctrine of justification. If in justification the judge says of you, you are not guilty, you are acquitted... In the doctrine of adoption, a father says to you, welcome home. You're my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. The one is surely good news that we will not pay the penalty for our sins and we are set free in this legal way. The other is familial and loving and warm. And God didn't leave that part of his salvation out of scripture, but he tries to impress it upon us. Even John, the beloved disciple, maybe he understood it better than most. In 1 John chapter 3, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. What? That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We've been made his sons. But God knows that we don't believe that. And so God also has sent his spirit to make us believe that we are sons of God. He sends his spirit because otherwise we would not be convinced of it. So the spirit comes to assist us in our comprehending of something that is beyond all human predication and comprehension. How? It's, it's stranger than, than most things. Paul says he cries as a witness in our soul of what God has done by crying, Abba, Father. Now, again, that seems strange. How does that give us any assurance? Well, Paul is not saying that you should be assured of God's love if you've heard somehow the Spirit's cry. Because, but rather, what is at the bottom of the Spirit's cry is that if we ever cry out to God as Father, that is a strange testimony that the Spirit of God who seals His children is within us. 
If when you are brokenhearted, you've ever cried out the name of God, if you've ever called upon him as father for help, that is the spirit of the son sent to you to testify that you are a child of God. If you've ever turned to him in time of need, that was the spirit of the son in you turning to God as father and testifying to you that you are a child of God. If you've ever even cried, Father, where are you in this trial? That is the same spirit giving a strange testimony that you are without a doubt God's own. You'll notice Paul quotes the Aramaic here, Abba, Father, to an all-Greek audience. It just seems like a strange thing to do when you're teaching the Galatian church about something that they can call God or the Spirit calls God Father on their behalf. But he does it for a very particular reason, because he's not just saying something, he's quoting something. Paul's lifting words from another part of Scripture and saying, the Spirit of the Son cries within you, Abba, Father. And these are the very words of Christ when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane in the darkest hour of his life, when he calls out concerning the will of God for him, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. How does he start that prayer? Abba, Father. And Paul says that spirit that was at work in Christ in that garden is at work in you, testifying that you're part of the family of God. It is the family name that Christ called his own father when he spoke to him in the time of his greatest need. It was the, you know, a lot of people take this verse and say, Abba, Father, it's baby talk, it's what little children say. Now it is a child's name for their father, but it's the same name that they use into adulthood concerning their father. So it's not like we're, we're speaking baby talk, but it is a familial address to your father, a nearness, and it's the address that Jesus himself uses of his own father in his darkest Hour. So notice Paul says in the sending of his son, he makes a legal action, but in the sending of the spirit of the son, he testifies concerning something. That Jesus makes it possible not for us just to be in, not just to escape judgment, but to be so taken into the family of God that we use the natural born sons own language to speak of his own father. He says, those are your words now. Paul says it in Romans 8. Notice here he says, the Spirit cries it in Romans 8. He says, you cry it by the power of the Spirit when you cry, Abba, Father. We speak to his father the identical way he speaks to him because we have now been made sons in the same way that he is a son as far as through our adoption. Paul preserves it because Jesus spoke it and it's precious and he gives it to us and he says, this is your father too. These are your words too. And those words testify to you that you are God's child and that notice for Paul, you are so already. But there's nothing left that needs to be done. You don't need to graduate into sonship. You are his beloved, and in uh, you are his beloved, in whom he is already well pleased, because you're hidden in his only begotten. And that Father who loves you has given the gift of his Spirit to be at work in our struggles in the midst of this age. 
to empower us to call on God as Father, to nudge us to dare to even believe what is ours until the day that we see what is ours. At the revelation of the sons of God, even the redemption of our bodies, behold what manner of love the Father has gifted unto us, that the Creator God calls us His own kids And that we are given the right to call the creator of all Father, our Father. And if our Father, then we are heirs. Behold what love the Father, Son, and Spirit have, that they are all at work for your salvation. To grant you this inheritance. I mean, how heavy is that? That all that is His is ours. And all our mess is his. And they say you can't choose your family. But he did. And he did it on purpose. He chose you on purpose. He loved you on purpose. He sent his son intentionally for you. And he sent his spirit to seal those things to you. He means it. You are family. And he will keep pursuing you until you finally see it. And finally fully believe it. When you see him and are like him, for you see him as he is. Let's pray.